We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service before the sermon, three passages were read from the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Mahatma Gandhi famously said, One may drink out of the same great rivers with others, but one need not use the same cup. And by this, he was referring to his belief that in his own words, the soul of religion is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. My position, Gandhi said, is that all the great religions are fundamentally equal. Now, this approach to religion is typically called pluralism. The idea that different religions, when we really get below the surface, they don't contradict each other. They actually complement one another. They're just different perspectives on the same greater reality, the same universal reality. They're different paths to the same truth. Now, at its heart, pluralism typically is a quest for peace and unity. We all know that religion has led to countless conflict and incredible oppression. And pluralism, it it comes from this kind of innate knowledge that there is something that holds everything and everyone together. And furthermore, another good thing I think about pluralism is that it identifies God as the unifying principle. But the question must be, which God? And that brings us to our three portions of Scripture that we've heard read tonight. We heard Isaiah chapter 6, John chapter 3, and Romans chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's this phrase talking about God. It says in verse 3, the whole earth, is filled with his glory. Now, that's an exclusive claim. That's a claim that the Christian view of God is, is of a God who is the one true worldwide. He fills up the earth. Universal God. That he is the only God. And then when we jump forward to John chapter 3, and if you have your Bible You're welcome to turn there. John chapter 3. And here we see that this God, this one true universal worldwide God, says you must be born of the Spirit to enter God's kingdom. And in verse 15 and 16 it says, you must believe in the Son that was sent by the Father. Now, we find the same nature of God described in Romans chapter 8, in verse 16. It says, The Spirit, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
And this is foundational to the Christian religion. It is the conviction that we have come to know the only true God. And He exists as a trinity. One being eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not three gods. That's polytheism. And and, and Christianity is staunchly monotheistic. There is just one God. And it's not that God um, kind of slips in and out of three different forms at three different times. You know, at this moment, He's the Father when He's creating, and then He's the Son when He's walking around, and then after the Son leaves, He's the Spirit. It's not that at all. It's that He has eternally existed as the triune God. Think of it this way. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit mutually permeate one another so completely that one is always in the other two. Now, there's a big word that helps us envision the the Trinity. And it goes back to the 4th century, and it's this, perichoresis. Now, we can do this because we learned our Greek roots in school, right? So, peri, it's the Greek root. We use it in the word periscope. It means around. Um, And choresis, we have it in our word choreography. It means dance. So, perichoresis is, is a word that the church has used since the 4th century to talk about the divine dance. It's this idea that the inner life of God is characterized by mutual self-giving love. When you love someone, you enter into their orbit. You enter into this kind of relationship where you center yourself on their interest, on their desires, and this creates a dance. And that's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit This is really beautiful. Each moving around the other, centering upon the other. None demands that the other revolve around him, but each voluntarily circles the other, pouring love and delight and adoration into the other. And that creates this dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. And the early church leaders, they called this perichoresis, the divine dance, in order to capture two things, the distinct individuality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and at the same time to recognize that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so permeate and so interpenetrate the other that that there's this kind of profound individuality and at the same time, a profound unity. And this is what the quotes in the front of our worship guide by C.S. Lewis and Cornelius Plantinga, this is what they're getting at. That God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are bound up in each other so that one is not himself without the other. God is not God apart from the way in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit in eternity give themselves to each other and receive from each other who they essentially are. Now, obviously, this is perplexing and it kind of sends our mental circuits to overload. 
But this astonishing, dynamic conception of a triune God is bristling with profound, world-changing, life-shaping implications. Let's just talk about three. Let's talk about what the Trinity shows us about God, about ourselves, and about other religions. First of all, the Trinity shows us that the essence of God is love. By nature, love is relational. It's interactive and interpersonal. Love requires two. It only exists in giving and receiving. It's something that a person has for another. You don't just, in isolation, have love. It's something that a solitary being cannot have. And this, by the way, is a source of the major difference between Islam and Christianity. Because if God is not Trinity, then the essence of reality is power. But because God is Trinity... The essence of reality is this dynamic giving and receiving of love. Now, before time, space, or matter ever existed, God called us into being out of, not out of his power, but out of his love. Why? Was it because he needed something? No. God has no hunger that needs to be filled. God doesn't need more dancers. He created us to share in the joy of the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's kind of like when someone's child gets married and you invite as many friends as you can to the wedding. Why? Because we want everyone to share in our own love and joy. That's the creation of the universe. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is the reason that Christianity alone among all world religions gives love primacy. This is ultimate reality. And it leads us to the next implication of the Trinity. If God is triune and we are created in the image of God, like it says on the second page of the Bible, we are created in and for Relationship. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Created in God's image. Who is God? He is the triune God. So to be human is to be created in and for community. You can't even be made as a human apart from a community. It requires two. To be human is to be created in and for community. Now, there are several life-shaping implications of that idea. First of all, it shows us that in those moments in life when we are tempted to move away from others, when we are tempted to crawl into the cave of our heart, and to exist in isolation. In those moments in life when we've been hurt so deeply and we feel this inexorable pull away from other people, 
or to turn others into a means to our own end. This movement away from created things. This is against nature. It's unnatural. But when we open our hearts to Christ and we receive His Spirit into us, one of the things the Spirit does, we find this all over Scripture, is that He provokes and He empowers us to live according to our true nature. The Holy Spirit, as we open ourselves up to God, we will discover this strange power to cross boundaries. First of all, the boundary between us and God. Listen again to Jesus' words in John 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You need the Spirit in order to cross the boundary between you and God. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. By who we cry, Abba, Father. You see what the Spirit does? It does something in us that enables us to reach out and to have this deeply intimate connection with the incredible other. The one who is so far beyond us, we can't even reach out to him apart from his Spirit working in our life. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit crosses the ultimate boundary. It crosses the boundary between us and our Creator. In both of these passages, we see that the Spirit opens us up to God and leads us into an intimate and personal relationship with our Maker. That's one boundary. A second power the Spirit gives us is the power to cross the boundaries between us and others. We saw this last week in the passages about Pentecost, right? All of these different nationalities, and they're divided. But with the advent of the Spirit, they're able to relate to one another. So I'll not go into it deeply here, but let me just say one thing. I'm convinced that one of the primary reasons charismatic churches are typically far more multicultural than non-charismatic churches, is this. Is that when you open yourself up to the strange, weird, catch-you-off-guard power of the Spirit, it will cross boundaries that heretofore have been impossible cross. And as we do this, as we open ourselves up to the work of God's Spirit within us, we will learn to treat others with respect, not to use each other as a means to an end. Look, just think about this for a minute. Think about how the Trinity teaches us about love. The Trinity shows me that love serves your interests. Remember in terms of perichoresis? This dynamic orbiting around one another, centering on the other's interests and desires? That's love. So in loving you, 
I make your interest my interest instead of the opposite. Instead of those kinds of relationships, when I enter into the scene, I make my interest the sum total of your interest. Have you ever talked with someone who gets distracted as soon as the topic shifts from them and their interest and their plan and their agenda? It's not love. It's not the Trinity. Love leads us out of ourselves. Love is the end of deception. Because why is there any need for deception that protects myself if I'm accepted and honored by you? There's no more suspicion. There's no manipulation. Love does not manipulate. It does not use people. So if you favor money or power or accomplishment over human relationships, if we operate as if success is the ultimate importance, if the fear of failure drives us to such a success orientation that everything is sacrificed for the job, the career, the company, then you can be sure you will dash yourself against the rocks of ultimate reality. Love. You're trying to live in an unnatural way. You're living against the grain of the universe. You, you, it cannot possibly work. You will not possibly find happiness and satisfaction. C.S. Lewis was right when he said that there are only two places free from the pain and suffering of relationship. Heaven and hell. That's the only two options. And one, you get free from it by utter isolation. And the other, you get free from it, the pain and the suffering, because you are perfected to enjoy it. This world was not created by a solitary, singular, isolated being. It was created by the triune God who is essentially love. And so you and I were made by and in the image of of a mutually self-giving, other-directed God. Therefore, we are made to be other-oriented, other-giving, other-directed. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. Whether that's a marriage, or a business, or what have you. Now, to wrap all this up, Let's go back to where we started with Gandhi's pluralism. What does the Trinity show us about other religions? First of all, and this is an important aspect of the Trinity that, that I haven't mentioned, part of what God as Trinity shows us is that God values differences. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. The Trinity is the enemy of homogenization. Whether it's the Western commercialized type or the Eastern kind of dictator type. Whether it's the Coca-Cola sign in every village or it's forced conformity by the government in an Eastern setting. The Trinity is the enemy of homogenization. Just look at what the Trinity created. 
Try to find any two trees that are homogenized, that look exactly alike. Try to find any two snowflakes. Try to pick any two people in your family. This is unbelievable. What greater testimony is there to the fact that the creator of all things values diversity than the world we live in? One of the problems with pluralism is that it discards the uniqueness of each religion. For example, what religions claim about who God is. We've seen this evening that Christianity doesn't have this kind of vague concept of this impersonal force. But Christianity has a particular and unique confession that the Creator God is a trinity. So when it's argued that really below the surface, Christianity and Buddhism or what have you, that, that they're, they're the same... That's not a statement about real Christianity or real Buddhism. Pluralism does not compare different religions. It compares parodies and caricatures of different religions. It distorts them into something that loses all particularity. It's like me gathering a group of people in a room who are mad at each other and saying, now come on now, you really are all the same. That's insulting. Because we are created in the image of the triune God who is essentially love. Remember what we said about the Trinity teaches us about what it means to love and how to treat the other? Then our goal when it comes to other religions must be to hold our convictions and to honestly, with kindness and respect, listen. And when we do this, and when we recognize that admitting real differences is not the same thing as picking a fight, then it's actually a way of taking the other person seriously. I take you seriously when I let you be you. I take my wife seriously when I don't try to make her into me. Our president recently gave a speech in Cairo where he addressed the issue of Muslim-Christian relations. In commenting on the speech, Miroslav Volf, a professor at Yale, said this, In our encounter with others, if we see only differences, the result is exclusion. That's fundamentalism. If we see only commonalities, the result is distortion. That's pluralism. Only when we see both undeniable differences and commonalities that bind us together, only then are we able to honor both others and ourselves. That's a Trinitarian approach to other religions. Now with that said, Listen to what Michael Green, a longtime pastor in Oxford, England, says. He, he once said this, No faith, no religion would last very long if it did not contain much that is true. Other religions are a preparation for the gospel. And Christ comes not so much to destroy as to fulfill those religions. 
A convert from another religion to Christianity, this is Michael Green talking, will not feel that he has lost his background, but that he has discovered that to which, at its best, his religion always pointed. That is, according to Michael Green, certainly the attitude I have found among friends who have converted to Christ from Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. They are profoundly grateful for what they have learned in those cultures. But they are thrilled beyond words to discover a God who has stooped to their condition in coming here as the man of Nazareth and who has rescued them from guilt and alienation by his cross and the resurrection. So who is God? The Christian answer to that is the Trinity. The one creator God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you accept Him into your life, you are born all over again. And the Spirit will permeate you. It will link you to Jesus in an intimate way. Listen again to Paul's words in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, now they are sons and daughters of God. You do not receive a spirit of slave. When you receive God, you're not made into a slave. No, you instead have received the spirit of adoptions as sons who cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So here's the most important question of the night. Have you accepted Him into your life as your Creator? You see, it's entirely possible to be converted to the church and not converted to Christ. Many times, people convert to Christianity for social reasons or political reasons because of family kind of culture. But their hearts are not changed by the power of God. To convert to Christ, we must step out of our own self-centeredness. We must trust Christ. We must realize that to convert to Christ is to come to serious kind of grips with the fact that Jesus, when He died, He was inviting you into the eternal dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. When Jesus died for us, He was inviting us, again in the words of Lewis, this is so incredible, to touch a rhythm not only of creation, but of all being. He is inviting you to begin centering everything in your life on the one who is moving toward you, who is encircling you and dancing around you and drawing you to your, himself in self-giving love. And if you respond to him, trust him, and repent of all your self-centeredness, in all your sin, then your relationships with others will begin to heal because you get 
to receive the power of the Spirit that crosses those boundaries. Have you done this? If you haven't, then I would love to chat with you, and there are lots of people in this room who would love to chat with you. Call us, email us, throw a rock through the window late at night, however you want to do it. Let's pray.